0: We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Please join me in taking your Bibles and turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Matthew, chapter 2, verses 13 through 23 this morning. We are going to delve into a Christmas text this morning. I told our staff this morning that I have never attempted to preach from and over the course of my years in church I have actually never heard a sermon on this text. So we're going to walk through this text together I think as I've explored it over the past several weeks and getting ready for this morning. It has been one that has really opened up my eyes and I wonder if this is a Christmas text that has not been ignored to the peril of the church. As we get started though this morning I want you to think about what it would be like to be on the run from the law. To know you were being chased, to know that someone was trying to arrest you, and to know that if you were caught, you would be killed. Now, on top of this, I I want you to place this with your story as well. You are 100% completely innocent. You've done absolutely nothing wrong, but even though you are innocent, you are still on the run. And you're on the run to the point that you cannot even stay in your home country. That you are being chased out of your national borders and you are going to have to find refuge and find safety somewhere in a foreign land. That is exactly where we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 2. But the person on the run, Jesus himself and his parents. Jesus, the refugee. Jesus, on the run from the law. Jesus, in a foreign land. It's a part of the Christmas story that we have ignored maybe far too often. You'll remember that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. you remember that Mary and Joseph were going there for a census. But when Jesus came and the birth began to happen... They looked for a place in the inn, but there was no room for them in the inn. So they found shelter in a barn, and Jesus was born, and he was laid there in a manger. We're told that wise men from the east came bearing gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The star had directed them, and they found Jesus there lying in the manger, and they worshiped him. But on the way in, they ran into the regent king of Judea. Not a true Jew and not a true king, but a man by the name of Herod. And Herod, hearing that a man, one who was born who was to be king of the Jews, was threatened. Even in his old age, he wanted no rivals to his throne. So he asked some questions about where this child was to be born. He even pulled in the teachers of the law and the scribes. And he asked the magi to come back through and let him know where the child was so that he too could go worship him. What we know from the story we're about to read is that Herod had absolutely no desire to worship Christ. In fact, he had a desire to murder Christ. He had a desire to kill Christ because he would stand no rivals. But praise God, the Magi, they were warned in a dream not to go back the way they had come and not to go back to visit with Herod. And it wasn't just the Magi that were warned on the night that they left, but Joseph was warned too. We were told that he had been visited before and told by God not to divorce Mary, but to take her as his wife, that the child was going to be born of God. But he is told in this dream to leave his country, to leave his home, to leave the only place he had ever known and to take his family and to become refugees in a foreign land and to wait until God's command until they could come back. And that is the place where we pick up the Christmas story As we stand and read together Matthew chapter 2, we begin in verse 13. When they had gone, it's talking about the wise men. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. And stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And he said, get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. O Lord Jesus, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder how you could love us sinners condemned and unclean. Lord, today as we read this passage, even at our first reading, we're overwhelmed with the prophecies that you fulfilled. And God, when we recognize who you are and the prophecies that you have fulfilled, we know that they demand our allegiance and that they demand our obedience. So teach us that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please be seated this morning? We have one dominating big idea this morning, and that is simply this, that Jesus' birth fulfilled prophecies in ways that demand our allegiance and our obedience to Him. As we read together, you probably noticed as you were looking down at your copies of God's Word that over and over again, just in this small passage that Matthew is bringing out the prophecies of Jesus' birth, that there is absolutely no way that Jesus was an accident, that he was a random child, that there's no way that his Messiahship could have been assigned to him later. It has been estimated there are 326 Old Testament prophecies. The chance of Jesus just fulfilling eight of those would be the same chances if you filled up the state of Texas with quarters and you stacked them six feet high and you randomly put a red X on one of those quarters and then you chose someone randomly and you allowed them to pick any one of the quarters that covered the state of Texas six feet high. The chances that they would pick the right quarter are the same chances that Jesus would have fulfilled just eight of the prophecies, but he fulfilled three 126 and one of Matthew's goals in his gospel is to show that Jesus is the Messiah by proving that he fulfilled prophecies and so we jump right into this story because it's a disturbing story murder and Christmas do the two things actually go together Because we go from Luke's story of the angels that we have heard on high, and they're exclaiming the Messiah's birth, and the shepherds who are praising him, and the magi who are bowing before him, and they're leaving their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And all of the sudden, out of that story, the next story that we see is instead of there being peace and goodwill. There is no peace for Mary. There is no peace for Joseph. There is no peace for Jesus because their rejoicing is short-lived. As the Magi warned, as, as they were warned to disobey Herod, Joseph is also warned to take his wife and newborn baby and flee approximately 175 miles on foot to Egypt. How many of you know if you've ever traveled with a baby, it is hard to get from here to Brookhaven? And that's in a car, with a car seat, with bottles and three cans of puffs and and nooks and everything that you can imagine. When you travel with your children, I have seen you and I have been there, you look like you could be going on a three-month adventure. And these people set out walking to go to a country that they had never been to among a people that they had never been to to try to avoid what the angel knew was coming, that these babies were going to be murdered and they were going to be killed, going to Egypt. Egypt was actually a place that was an asylum for the Jews. It served an asylum during Greek rule. It's one of the reasons Alexander the Great set up Alexandria in the nation of Egypt and it remained that during the Roman Empire as well. You wonder how it was that Joseph and Mary, they couldn't even afford in the temple to give an offering of a lamb. How do they afford this vacation? How do they afford this trip? That's a great question. If any of you know, anytime you try to travel, especially as a young family, it's expensive. It was expensive then and it's expensive now. Now we're factoring in the cost of gas and hotel rooms. And if you have booked a vacation for your family lately, probably you looked up and said, this is unbelievable how much money we're about to spend. For a young man who is just married, he's got a baby now, he's a carpenter, there's no expendable income. How do they get to Egypt? These are the kind of questions that we read the Bible, I think ought to come off the page. How were they provided for? It's no accident that the night before they left, they were given three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh valuable gifts given by these magi from the east and I would submit to you that it is very possible in fact probable that the whole stay they had in Egypt was financed by the gifts that were given to the magi from the magi because God knew beforehand that this poor couple wasn't going to be able to afford to be on the run to be refugees in a foreign country and so they take this little bit of money that they've been given now and they head out and they prophecy we see is fulfilled a prophecy that is from Hosea 11 and 1 when it says out of Egypt I have called my son this prophecy was true of Egypt was true of Israel in part because God called the nation of Israel out of Egypt but now it is true fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ But it isn't just that prophecy that is fulfilled. We see that there's another prophecy that is fulfilled. A prophecy from Jeremiah 31.5. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Verse 18. When you see the word Rachel, the name Rachel. Rachel is symbolic of the nation of Israel because Rachel was Israel's favorite wife. In Jeremiah, this prophecy applied because Jewish mothers were weeping over their children in the days of Jeremiah because that is when the Babylonian exile took place and these children were being captured and taken from their mother's arms. And now this prophecy, it applies in an even more deep way as we read it together because of what's taken place. Herod is given the most awful edict that you could possibly imagine. He sends out his foot soldiers to do nothing less than to murder every child that is male under the age of two. I began to wonder what type of Holocaust was this? How many babies could this have been? And looking at population studies from the vicinity of Bethlehem and, and, and the census back in that day. Scholars vary. Somewhere between 60 and 200 babies were murdered just in this vicinity that day by the sword. Soldiers going from house to house taking their swords and plunging it into the bodies of male children. And so these daughters of Israel, these daughters of Rachel, now on a time in which it should have been rejoicing, it should have been in praise, it should have been in exaltation, peace had come to mankind, and yet now what we visualize on this Christmas is mothers who are sitting in their homes holding their dead infants and wondering why. We have a group of soldiers who unquestioningly went house to house, and we had scribes and Pharisees that never stood in the way of this old king refusing for power to be taken from his old, gnarled, arthritic hands, and all he can do is give an edict to try to have children murdered. What we know from history is that Jesus probably wasn't but about six months old when this was given. But yet, Herod trying to hedge his bet, says, kill every one of them under two. I want to make sure that there's no possibility that we don't miss this child who may be a threat to my throne. This slaughter parallels the slaughter of the Jewish male babies in Exodus chapter 1 while they were in Egypt. It was Satan's attempt in the book of Exodus to destroy the redemptive plan of God. And as you read about it here in Matthew, it is Satan's attempt once again to destroy the Messiah so he could not redeem, so he could not deliver, so he could not save, so he couldn't bring people out of their sin so they would still be captive to their sin and their shame and still captive to Satan himself. And we see these wicked attempts that have happened in the Old Testament and now we read them again in the New. And we see that Rachel's tears, these howls of grief are now drowning out the angels' cries from that Christmas day. Just as Israel left Egyptian captivity to come to the promised land, Jesus returned from Egypt to take people to an even greater land of promise. Within generations of Jeremiah's prophecy that we read about, What we know is that the people would return from Babylon back to the promised land. And what we know about Christ is that one day Christ is going to lead all of the chosen, all of those who have given their lives to him, that he is going to lead them to an even greater land of promise than the nation of Israel. You see, our greatest hope is not that we would be restored one day to the nation of Israel, but that one day the greater promised land that is promised to all who have been redeemed would be given to us. What we know about Rachel, this favorite wife, is that she died giving birth to a son. Do you remember what she named him? Many people will say she named him Benjamin. She did not name him Benjamin. That became his name, but that is not what his mother named him on her deathbed. She named him Ben O'Nee. She named him. Son of my sorrows, because she gave birth to him in death. But what we know is that his father took him and within those days changed his name. And instead of calling him Ben-Oni, son of my sorrows, named him Benjamin, son of my right hand. It is not by mistake that this son of Benjamin would constantly be called the man of sorrows, but when he was exalted at his ascension, he would be the son that what sat at the right hand of God, from Ben O 'Nee, son of sorrow, to Benjamin, son of my right hand. when Jesus comes to a place everything changes. When you would have mentioned Bethlehem to people in the Old Testament, it would not have been thought about like you think of Bethlehem today. Bethlehem, along the road in Bethlehem, is where Israel buried his wife. That is where he dug the hole and placed Rachel inside of it. The gravestone would have been marked her life there in Bethlehem. Also there in Bethlehem is the highway that led to Babylon where the deportation of the Jews came when the Babylonian invasion came. So the road by Bethlehem was not a road that was celebrated in the Old Testament. It was a place of mourning. It was a place of death. It was a place of deportation. Yet now when the word Bethlehem is mentioned, what comes to your mind? Do you think of death? Do you think of deportation? No, immediately you think of mangers and you think of birth and you think of life and you think of angels and you think of wise men and you think of the most glorious event that marked human history. Friends, you can say what that you want, but skeptics, even skeptics today believe in the birth of Jesus. You say, why is that? Because they use the calendar every day. And my Christ is the reason that the year is 2022 and will become 2023. They don't, nobody else in world history changed the calendar. Alexander the Great did not change the calendar. No leader of world history changed the calendar. But on that day, when you think back to Bethlehem, you think about the world radically changing. And I would tell you that when Jesus comes to a place, when Jesus comes to a life, we go from thinking of it as a place of death and a place of hurt and a place of pain to thinking of it as a place of life. It's no different than your own life. That when you think about who you were before Christ. Christ and what you are now your soul was a place of death your soul was a place of sorrow your soul was a place of wickedness your soul was a place of hurt your soul was ben on knee. your soul was a place of sorrows but now it is that you too have benjamin with you that you are going to god's right hand because this baby that was born in bethlehem came into your life now your life your destiny your your purpose have been radically changed because this child not only came to Bethlehem this child came to you verses 22 and 23 Joseph is finally going back scholars vary on how long they believe Jesus was there in Egypt Some would say it wasn't as maybe a few months. the, The longest time that people argue is that it might have been a couple of years. But when he heads back, Joseph is warned again not only to go back. But also that when he gets back to the land of Israel, not to go back to the land of Jerusalem because Herod has a son, Archelaus who is reigning there. And Archelaus is just as bloodthirsty as his father. So instead of going there, where does he go? He goes to a place called Nazareth. A place that people already knew when they thought about Nazareth. It was a place that, that nobody's came from. It was a place that was known as being trashy. It was a place that was crude. It was a place that was violent. Do you ever wonder why when Nathaniel saw Jesus, he asked the question, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was known as a place that nothing good came out of. But that's where they settled because it too would fulfill prophecies from the Old Testament. And we look towards these prophecies and recognize what it is that God has done in the miracle of Christ and in the fulfillment of these prophecies prophecies but maybe even now you're asking what I think is a great question an obvious question I don't know how many babies it was one baby is too many babies at the minimum dozens were murdered and you may be asking if God could warn Joseph Why didn't he warn every one of the other mamas and daddies? Why didn't they tell them to run to Egypt or to run to somewhere else to become refugees? Why is it that on this bloody, murderous night that God didn't warn everyone else, why did Jesus get a pass? That's what I asked. That's when I'm studying this passage. It it overwhelmed me and it bothered me. And I got hemmed up there. I had to stop. Lord, why didn't you tell everyone else? And then The Holy Spirit began to to really work in my life in trying to get through this passage and I was forced to ask this question. Larry, do you really think that I gave my son a pass? He escaped this bloody night, but it was about 30 years later that Jesus would not get a pass. It was about 30 years later from these events, that what we do find out actually took place. Jesus was born into a world of suffering. He was born into a world of pain. He was born into a world of murder. It wasn't safe. He wasn't in a rich family. He wasn't protected by a just government. But 30 years later, what we know is that he would be nailed to a cross that a sword would find its way into his side to confirm that he was dead, that he would come to a cross of nails, that he would come to a crown of thorns, and that he would be taken and he would be crucified on a trash heap called Golgotha or Calvary. And that on that Friday, Jesus wouldn't get a pass. Because even as he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That cry of derelidge would not be answered because your sin and my sin. All of our shame would be placed on the person of Christ. And so that every one of us could be redeemed because Jesus would not get a pass. But you may be asking another question which I think is equally as valid. What happened to Herod? There is no more disgusting an individual as recorded in human history than Herod. There is no more wicked an individual, horrific individual, treacherous individual. In fact, if you read about him. He would have wives murdered. He would have his own children murdered. In fact, one historian said it was safer to be Herod's swine than it was to be his wife or his child. That is how murderous and horrific this man was. So if you delve into history, you find out from Josephus what actually happened to Herod. In fact, we know exactly when Herod died. He died When he was 70 years old, and this is the exact account that Josephus gave of what happened to Herod. Josephus said that Herod died of ulcerated entrails, putrefied and maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions, foul breath, and neither physicians nor warm baths could lead to his recovery. Now, that's a disgusting statement of what happened to him. But sometimes I read things like that and I think good. We hear so much in this world about justice. And the world has no more clue what justice is than the man in the moon. But I will tell you that there is a God in heaven who is just. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Herod reaped what he sowed. He attempted to hold on to power, allowing no rivals, and thought he had overturned all of these biblical prophecies. He knew of the prophecies. He consulted the scribes. He consulted the teachers of the law. But what ended up happening is those prophecies overturned him. He found out just how dangerous it is to mock God and deny God. His throne was toppled over. Maybe you were thinking when you see the name Herod, you may have questions. Wait a minute. If he died at 70, I thought I read about Herod later on. You, You do. When you get to the crucifixion, you read about Herod again. That's not the same one. In fact, the Herod that we read about later is Herod's grandson, the one that was... Jesus was placed on mock trial in front of when that grandson's name was Agrippa. What we know about Agrippa and what we know are in Luke 12 and then the Herod that followed him is that this man was stricken and eaten by worms and he died as well. A century after this event, Herod's entire line was dead. But the children of God are growing day by day by day. You see, Matthew wrote this story when he already knew how the end would come. He already knew what the end would be. And when Matthew wrote this story, if you didn't already know the end of the story, you would would be biting your fingernails and you would be flipping the pages trying to find out what happened to this boy. What happened to this one child that made it through that wasn't massacred? He, He was saved and he was a refugee in Egypt. What happened to him? And what we find is the only boy who was saved would be the only boy that could offer salvation. The only boy who would come out of this murderous, horrific event would be the one that this brutal night would end up being the only one that could provide an escape for us all. He's the only one that could set things right. You see, friends, they thought they had gotten the best of Jesus at his birth. They thought they had killed him and exterminated the threat. And again, they thought they had exterminated him at the crucifixion. And they laughed and they jeered and they thought it was all over. The Jewish authorities and the Pharisees thought they were done with him. Herod thought he was done with him. Herod's grandson thought he was done with him. And then something happened that none of them were going expected. First of all, he made it out of Egypt and he made it out alive. But then you know what else he did? He made it out of the grave and he made it out alive alive. He rose. He defeated sin. He defeated death. He defeated shame. He defeated the Roman authorities. He defeated the Jewish authorities. He defeated Satan himself. So as we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate a king who wins. We celebrate a king who is risen. And because he has won, even amidst the tragedies of life, what we know is that Emmanuel God is with us. And so we wait. We wait on that day that darkness will be extinguished forever. Grief is real. Loss is real. Weeping is real. But you need to know this. Evil never, ever gets the last word. Jesus wins in the exact same way that these prophecies were fulfilled. Matthew lists them. If you continue to read through the gospel of Matthew, it is prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. And in the exact same way these prophecies were fulfilled with precision in his first coming, he will fulfill perfectly every prophecy about when he comes again. Friends, many refuse to believe at the first incarnation. It's really amazing that when we read the Christmas story, who believed? Who really believed? His mama and his daddy? Some shepherds? Some wise men from the east? It was a very small group of people that gathered there at that manger in that barn in Bethlehem. There were very few that recognized. The scribes didn't recognize The Pharisees didn't recognize. Herod didn't recognize. Person after person after person did not recognize. But what we know as we celebrate Christmas today is there is soon and coming a time where everyone will recognize. The Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You're saying, Larry, does that mean that everybody is going to be saved? No, no. But there were people who refused to bow their knee the first time because they wanted to have the power and they wanted to have the control and they didn't want to surrender their lives to Christ. Friends, there's coming a time when everyone will surrender. They won't surrender in salvation, but they will surrender in recognizing his identity. You will bow before Jesus What we ought to see in Christmas, though, is that you should bow before him now, before you are forced to bow later. Friends, he is the Christ. He is the fulfillment of every prophecy. Recognize him, worship him, and submit to his rule. Really, there's a lot of characters when we study the birth of Christ. But for the sake of this morning, I just want to focus on two. Herod and then Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph. Can you imagine what the announcement must have been like to Mary and to Joseph? You're a 15-year-old virgin, but you're about to birth God. And by the way, you're going to raise him as well. He's going to be the Messiah of the world, and he's going to save the world from their sins. And by the way, the child that you raise, he's going to save you too. Your whole life is not going to be about your career, about your wants or your wishes or your desire. Your whole life is going to be framed because you are going to be his parents. They submitted to this child. Because they recognized that their purpose and their destiny was bound in him. But there's another character that we encounter as well. And I believe that Herod is included in the Gospels because he represents every person who refuses to bow their knee to Christ. You want to rule your own life? You want to be your own God? You want to control your own destiny? You want to think that you are the one who makes all the decisions about everything regarding who you are and what you will become? You are Herod. And for every person that chooses the way of Herod, there is a way that seems right unto a man that leads to death. Herod's way is the way of hell. Mary and Joseph's way is the way of the kingdom of God. Give your life to the Christ of Christmas. Be ye saved Quit trying to control your life. Quit trying to be the one that runs the show. For some of you today on Christmas certainly when we gather together, we all like to have this impression that we've got it together, that we've got it figured out, that we're in control. What is Christmas really about? It's about bowing before the Lord God and the humble recognition that you have nothing figured out, that you can't run your own life, that you are messed up, that you are fragile, that you were a sinner, and that before him, that baby born in Bethlehem and placed in a manger, that lived 33 years of sinless perfection, and would not escape death, that would not Not escape the cross that he would die for you. He would be your substitute. That he would become your redeemer. That he would become your justifier. That he would be taken off of that cross and laid in a borrowed tomb, and that two days later he would defeat sin and death forevermore. That if you would quit trying to run your own life and you would quit trying to control things, and you would start believing that only Christ is the way of your salvation, and you would trust him, and you would repent of your sins and. And you would go to him then that baby that was born and laid in the manger in Bethlehem who is now risen the one who has been on but became Benjamin and sits at the right hand of God the Father he extends the invitation to you to come out of your place of sorrows and come so you might one day be exalted and be at the right hand of God as well trust the risen savior trust the Christ of Christmas Would you stand with me? Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.